0: I think there's a percentage of people that aren't psychopaths, but when they get in, when they get directed by or in contact with and uh, effectively infected by these people, mm-hmm. they begin to enjoy the same pleasures of psychopathy.
1: Welcome back to Mind Matters, everyone. I'm Harrison Cayley. I've got Elon Martin and Adam Daniels in the studio. Today, we are pleased to be joined by Michael Rechtenwald. Michael is the author of several books. We've got, I think all of his recent ones here. We got uh, Thought Criminal, his most recent. We've got Beyond Woke, we've got Google Archipelago, and Ilan's got uh, Springtime for Snowflakes. Right there. Nice. You're, you're the author of, of several more books, uh, Michael, but these are, these are what you've been focused on in, uh, in recent years. Maybe for, for viewers who aren't familiar with your story, just give a, give a background on why are you writing these type of books now, as opposed to the kind of academic stuff that you used to be writing?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I was a scholar of 19th century British science and culture. And so uh previous to these books i had a book called 19th century british secularism science religion and literature and another book called global secularisms in a post-secular age i was a secular scholar scholar of secularism as such starting with its roots in 19th century britain but um you know then i had a fallout with the with the uh with the university and uh, with the New York Justice. Yeah, Yeah, from New York University. Yeah. And uh, I had a fallout with the social justice crew there. And, um, you know, all I did, I tweeted like these ribald bombastic tweets about social justice and stuff. And then I was uh, asked to be I was asked to be interviewed by a, a student newspaper reporter. I did the interview and then within two days, I was pressured into a leave of absence and condemned by a committee called the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Group. And thereafter, they just kept, you know, basically trying to make my life impossible there. Uh, They like went after me in a a bunch of emails later after I came back from the leave and uh, I had already, I'd been promoted to full professor in the interim. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that made them happy. And uh, they moved my office to the Russian department.
1: Yeah, exiled in to my Siberia. Own,
0: basically, my, I called it my own personal gulag uh, because there was like no books. They wouldn't move my books and they were way across campus and I couldn't do it. And uh, they isolated me totally. So, uh, yes, yeah, sued the university and five colleagues. Uh, who had uh, used the used the uh, university email listserv to uh, totally smear me and stuff, calling me everything from a right, uh, right-wing, alt-right, white supremacist. Um, all the names, you know, the same old stuff, except for one was short-pants white devil. Uh, I still haven't looked into what that means, but... Uh, <laughs> Short pants, white devil. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, and I sued them and I I settled with them in 2019. Actually, this case was going to this is something I don't often say. The case was basically dismissed because my attorneys couldn't overcome their uh, their uh, their motion to dismiss. They had an army of attorneys behind them. Mm -hmm. And so I invited Milo Yiannopoulos to speak in my classroom. And that caused this huge uproar. I got all these emails and all these threats from different student organizations threat, saying that I was putting them in danger and all this stuff. And the, the mayor of New York, de Blasio at the time, actually called the university and canceled the class. And so I thought, well, this would be a good time for, I bet you that the, the administration will come back to the table after this, you know, the negotiating table. And in fact, they did. Because who knows, I might have asked who uh, Richard Spencer next year, because after all, <laughs> the thing is, I wouldn't have. But I'm just saying that I they, they couldn't be sure what I would do. I was within my academic freedom rights, so so-called, and uh, to, to have whoever I wanted lecture in my classroom, as long as it's scholarly, which it was going to be. Uh, so they negotiated with me a, a settlement. And, uh, for, and then for I started your, writing, you know okay. at, during this time, I wrote Springtime for Snowflakes," which is about uh, not only my uh, the imbroglio at NYU, but also my academic history, like um, my own indoctrination into Marxism and postmodern theory and all that. And uh, so I go into quite a bit of depth about. My educational background in there, in in graduate school in particular, Uh, starting with uh, my MA at at Case Western Reserve, and then my PhD at Carnegie Mellon. (coughs) Uh, The English department at Carnegie Mellon, a bastion of uh, socialism and Marxism and feminism and postmodern theory, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really
1: uh, ironic and just uh, absurd the kinds of things that your university was, your colleagues were calling you the kind of things they were calling you. When, if you look at your history, history, I mean, you, it's probably hard to get any further left than you were for most of your like academic career. Like, would that right. be fair?
0: So, yeah, that's pretty fair. I was left of the Bolsheviks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah.
1: so it was, I was a,
0: yeah, no, go ahead. I was a left communist, you know? Uh, so what that means is, uh, Basically, anti-statist, communist, uh, and uh, you know, against the Bolsheviks for their authoritarianism and all that. I, I never was for totalitarianism. Um, I thought Marxism could be established or Marxist ideas could be implemented without that. You know, I I wrote a lot of essays and published, and this was not my academic work. This was kind of an avocation. I wrote for you know various Marxist journals and stuff. Publishing all kinds of stuff on political economy, uh, transhumanism even, and other things from a a Marxist perspective.
1: So, so this is, so that's your history. And like you said, it's, it's told very well, very entertainingly, very entertainingly, very clearly in your book, Mm -hmm. Springtime for Snowflakes. It's a great read. And, and then in, what was it 20, 15, 2016. When did you start the your Twitter account? 2016, in, in yeah, the so in, fall. So in 2016, was it that uh was it that in 2016 you noticed something or had it been kind of building to the point where you had to say something?
0: It, it was building a bit. Um <clears throat> I had uh witnessed some hiring practices in the university, and I recounted this in Beyond Woke. Um just crazy things going on in terms of the social justice or what now is called wokeness. Uh, the way they were running the university was obscene. And, uh, and there was a few other run-ins, you know, that I started having with uh, the transgender uh, ideological madness, and uh, I couldn't contain myself anymore. Mm-hmm. I had a distinct thought one night, and actually I was staying at a hotel cause I used to actually commute from Pittsburgh to New York and stay in a hotel. I, I stayed at the, um, the hell was that place again? Uh, I don't know this hotel on the, on the river, on the, on the Hudson, uh, the Jane, I, I would stay at the Jane hotel. And at one night I had the distinct thought if I, if I voiced what I'm thinking as a New York NYU professor, all hell will break loose, and I thought, <laughs> and what do you know? I, I did it. So,
1: <laughs> well, but so, but you did it, and the well, I'd say that for all of the like, well, it's easy for me to say on the outside looking in, but for all the the trouble you went through and all the all the all the hate and you know, all the disruptions to your life, I mean, I think from the work that you've been putting out. Um, not just in your books, but you you write regularly. You're published in, on Mises.org, and you write great stuff. And I think you I think without that experience, that you 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 probably wouldn't have gone in this direction and kind of come to the come to the conclusions that you've come to. Is that fair to uh, say?
0: Absolutely not. I would have not come to these conclusions if I hadn't stepped out and said what I thought, and uh, and then gotten the backlash that I did, and then saw the character of the left for what it was. Uh, I would have never, I never would have written these works. And I would have stayed as a kind of like hermetic, uh, hermetically sealed academic that I was mm-hmm. with like three readers of my books. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, let's be real about academia. Um, and, uh, you, you know, it's not my books have been, you know, my academic work has been cited reg- a lot, but. Uh, it's nothing like popular audiences, and what I mean here is a broader audience, mm-hmm. and uh, speaking as a public intellectual, public-facing intellectual, instead of just an academic, it's got a lot more, it's got a lot of rewards to it. Uh, and to it. It's, uh, it's more rewarding in a lot of ways. Uh, I miss teaching, but that's about it. I don't miss the colleagues, the administration, mm-hmm. <clears throat> or anything else about academia except for teaching. Mm-hmm. I well, can still do academic writing, but it's not worth it because you only do academic writing to to advance in academia. Generally,
2: that that's one of the main uh, takeaways I think from Springtime for Snowflakes. It's that um, you know, far from being this uh, this academia being this institution of, of free thought and intellectual uh, development and curiosity. It's far more politicized and far more of a um, a, a commodified job market in terms of mm-hmm. you know uh, professors you know marketing themselves as you know this niche you know cultural studies uh, figure and and this uh, you know this ideologue in a particular uh, sector of you know liberal left wing writing you know among other fields and you really bring that home in your book in your book as well, Michael. It's like a um it it really uh strips away the illusions we have about uh how universities and, and higher forms of education supposedly in the in the US are actually run. Yeah.
0: Yeah there it's uh it's a uh first of all there's a lot of narrow banding ideologically it's very very restrictive. And so I've seen people thrown out, for example, in my Ph.D. program, I saw people thrown out of the program for being other than leftist. Uh, I've seen people dismissed for and not hired in in the first place. I've been on hiring committees where anybody that was the slightest bit uh, conservative would be totally overlooked. They wouldn't even be considered at all. Uh, Any indication of that would be plenty to dismiss somebody and all you're looking for when you're doing these application, when you're doing these hiring, uh, doing this hiring, you're only looking for ways to get rid of people. And uh, being a white male would be one. I got lucky and got in before it became almost impossible for white males to get hired. Um, and now you have to put up these diversity, equity and inclusion statements in order to get jobs and you have to swear fealty to this agenda on the job. So, and who knows what else is going on at NYU? I've heard it's the department I was teaching in has been totally ruined by um, social justice or wokeness. And now everything is politicized. Every statement you make, you have to put these oaths basically on your syllabi and it's just terrible. And yeah, there's a lot of marketing going on. It's very narrow band niche marketing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, a lot of, you know, I would say it's really akin to advertising in the sense that you're just making these kind of, what they do is basically plug and play phraseology. Uh, You have to have the right uh, phrases, you know, like, you know, citing Paulo Freire or whatever. Idiot statements, basically, that anybody could put together. Probably, an algorithm could do most of these job applications just as well as people.
1: It's mm-hmm. great. It is crazy. I mean, um, well, I've heard I've heard stories about people actually, you know, in these situations, either getting into uh, getting positions in universities or even probably other jobs where they, they, they're essentially trainers, I think that, that help you, you know, say, oh, you, these are the things you have to say. This is the way to say it. Oh, yeah. And, and so a lot of people just treat it as, um, you know, th- there's no conviction behind it. It's just, these are the statements that I have to make. So you put it on there because you're not going to get hired otherwise. And right. it's just a, it's just a statement of, of belief. Yeah. It's just uh show that you'll comply, that you'll, that you'll pretend to uh, pretend to agree with all these things that even if, even, even if it's you don't think about it at all it's it's ridiculous
0: yeah there's a lot of that going on for sure but Did i'm getting nauseous so can we change the subject <laughs> yeah <laughs> well let's let's go let's go into, into something that
1: might be more nausea inducing but uh, totalitarianism so when mm. in a lot of your tweets and in your books um, you talk about totalitarianism and you and how how you see social justice and the ideology, like the collective ideology of social justice as like a new totalitarianism and the way it's being implemented as a new totalitarianism. So was that also something that you started seeing right away and did that develop? And like, I know a bit of your backstory on how that kind of extended your reading. Um, So you discovered... You discovered new writers that that had been off limits beforehand in your in your in your career, oh. like like the, the the libertarian thinkers, like like Rothbard and and Mises and and uh, like von Hayek, probably. So so tell us a little bit about that about your, your 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 intellectual journey in regards to the totalitarian aspect of what's going on.
0: Sure, sure, yeah. I, I noticed the totalitarian character of of the left suddenly. And I also noticed that I had been basically an authoritarian in some senses and uh, that I had to uh, and I totally just completely uh, shed that whole ethos and uh, seeing it just demonstrated so blatantly against me and made me think, I don't want anything to do with this ever again. And I renounced the whole left all at once. I put up a tweet at one point where I, I I voiced my total renunciation of the left for all time. And uh, then I started, you know, I was doing a lot of reading in the history of communism and uh, various areas. Like I, I mentioned in the forward that I wrote for your book, um, I did a lot of digging in the Stalinist digital archive. And uh, I was trying to get to the bottom of some of the uh some of the um well, just the way that totalitarianism operates and uh how it is justified and uh you know I started to see the whole left as a as effectively you know all the utopianism really was just so totalitarianism in waiting uh, I saw totalitarianism as uh, endemic to leftism in general and uh <clears throat> So I I did a lot of reading in the Black Book of Communism and uh, a lot of historical work, and then uh, that was the political transformation. I became a civil libertarian through that, and then I started a reading in the Austrian School uh, of Economics, and uh, that accomplished my conversion to the economic libertarianism. in effect, I came to believe that property rights are the real basis of the actual individual rights. The first property being property in oneself, and that um, when you have property in oneself, you, first of all, you can't have property in yourself as a com- in communism. That's you're immediately a slave because you have no rights of your own over your own body and what you do. And then I started to see uh, the same ideology operating in, uh, that was operating in the university every, you know, everywhere. And it really was metastasizing. It's not in my imagination. It's not like I was projecting this onto other out realms, but I saw it in the, you know, in the digital sphere and in business and corporate, corporate uh, policies and, corporate America, and then you know it's basically metastasized to the entire body politic now. Um, so I started studying uh, and I started writing about this great reset um, and in connection with uh, the kind of reading I was doing in, in terms of the Austrian school and the research into leftist criminality.
2: Well, I'm glad you mentioned all that because one thing that strikes me about uh, your books and and the essays and articles that you've been publishing on Mises and other places is the uh, broad spectrum of uh, ways in which totalitarianism has been made manifest uh, in particularly in the West. So mm-hmm. here are just a few of the titles of your of your articles, Michael, for our listeners, just so that people get a sense of, how, how many different ways you've been looking at this, uh, and in depth. So there's a vengeance and sacrifice whiteness as scapegoat in critical race theory and critical whiteness studies. Another one woke capitalism is a monopoly game. Another one, social, social justice and the emergence of COVID tyranny. Here's another one. Why postmodernism is incompatible with the politics of Liberty. Another one. The U S lacks a principled immigration policy. So this is, you also get into domestic politics. Dems are exploiting that under the guise of quote, humanitarianism, end quote. Here's another one who funds the riotous American left. And why the globalist billionaire class, which uses it to build corporate socialism. And here are a couple more. 79% of Americans think that the U S is falling apart. That's no surprise when half, the, half of the country wants to crush the other. And here's one last one. Backing Biden, leftist resistance to Trump perpetuates illegal US invasions, wars, neocon victories. So to me, it seems like you, you saw the, the template of totalitarianism and um, yeah. its essence. And then kind of like, uh, you know, the guy from um, uh, They Live, you know, you, you had the sunglasses on and you were able to see, you know, how this existed under the surface of so many different areas. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's almost an explosion of insight as, as far as I can tell, which I am, you know, glad for. Uh, and I'll, I'll just thank add you. one more thing. Uh, thank you. Uh, i'll just add one more thing there are very few writers uh and people speaking out and writing right now who who are able to i think look at so many different political social psychological economic fields and 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 look at it and and see exactly how it's gone horribly wrong and be right I don't think i've read anything of yours so far that i've thought oh he's right there but yeah there you know he obviously <laughs> hasn't read this or or this other thing and you know I, you know you're good man it's it's, it's <laughs> thank it's, you it,
0: thank you thank you very much i appreciate <laughs> yeah. that i'm flattered and uh, I'm, I'm a little bit shy about things like this but i, I really appreciate it
2: well one last thing I, I wanted to mention and that is that you're you have an excellent multi-part series on the great reset on the mizes website and uh that of course is like the the um the overlap between this you know ultra elite agenda and all of this kind of from the ground social Mm -hmm. justice there's a huge uh intersection pardon the the term um very much that (laughs) intersection (laughs) i get you intersectionality (laughs) Intersectional, intersectional <laughs> <Yes>. totalitarianism. <laughs> exactly, uh, but you make the connection qu- qu- quite well, and um, because okay. most m- most individuals, well, you do. Most people, you know, they see one dimension of it or the other really well if they if they've been researching it. And you're saying, no, look look at how one serves the other, or how one is being made to serve the other, and and uh i just think that that's also very important for people to understand that it's it's a um it's totalitarianism from above and below effectively
0: absolutely I, I i couldn't agree more it's like um th- there's something in common that socialists have in common with uh these uh corporate elite status and uh and that is they both want uh total intervention and control and uh, they're actually serving each other perfectly right now. So the left is totally uh, at the command and in the pocket of, and at working at the behest of, whether they know it or not, of corporate, state, elitists, and even to this day now, of course, the military industrial complex, and the uh, alphabet agencies, and uh, basically the whole establishment The left is now a total pro-establishment contention, which is just amazing. But if you think about it, it makes sense because once socialist ideas become dominant, then, of course, the socialists are going to support what's dominant because that's what they want. So uh, there's socialism, but it's corporate socialism, as I've said in those essays. Uh, And what I mean by that is that it's a corporate run socialism that is being established. Um, it's run and and operated by these uh, corporate elite oligarchs uh, and they're promising kind of socialism on the ground uh, as compensation for their effective monopolization of the entire international uh, world economy. Uh, they are instituting you know, or they're using especially socialist-like rhetoric, like equity, fairness, and inclusion, and all that. Uh, You know, when they mean equity, they mean equal outcomes, and fairness means the same. Uh, Basically, uh, it's socialism for thee, and um, uh, corporate monopolistic capitalism for me. That's really what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I
1: know that in I can't remember which book it was in. Maybe, maybe multiple ones. But you quote uh, and reference Anthony C. Sutton's work on <clears throat> uh, Wall Street and the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, we interviewed uh, uh, an author, uh, a researcher, Richard B. Spence, who wrote a book uh, like five years yes. ago. Yeah, Wall Street and the and the Russian Revolution. Have you read that one? Yes, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and one of the things that struck me—I hadn't—I haven't read Sutton yet, but I read Spence's book. And one of the things that struck me out out of that is that he he points out all of the all of the um, you know rich capitalists, um, corporatists in the the early 1900s, who were. Also, socialists, and he, and it's one of the things that I think that yes. you point out briefly, and that and that Sutton and well and uh, and Spence points out is that there is no contradiction between mm. you know between the two. It's like you, well, it seems odd at first because you think, oh, there's no way that this this uh, yes. this monopolist capitalist can be a socialist, but you find out, oh, they're actually they actually are, and and it, it makes sense like the way the way you put it in a in a modern context with reference to previous examples like Gillette, um, it makes sense. As you describe it, because well, what is when socialism is established? Like what happens? Well, it creates a giant monopoly. the The state is the monopoly, and with with uh, control control of the economy, control of the major like industries and corporations. Well, mm-hmm. of, so of course, if a if a a rich capitalist is looking at that, he's 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 going to think, well, that would be great if I was the state right? Exactly. You know, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not so great if someone else, you know, appropriates his, his, uh, his business, his corporation, yeah. and then, you know, incorporates it into the state. But if he can get in on the ground level, then, uh, it's gravy, you know, it's great.
0: Right. Uh, Sutton talks about this. Like I just pulled up a quote. That's why I was looking to my side here. He says, consequently, this is in uh, the book, uh, uh, What's it called? The, the um, Wall, Wall Street and the uh, Wall Street and the uh, Russian Revolution. Yeah, Consequently, one barrier to mature understanding of re- recent history is the notion that all capitalists are the bitter and unanswering and unswerving enemies of Marxists and all socialists. This er- erroneous idea originated with Karl Marx and was undoubtedly useful to his purpose. In fact, the idea is nonsense. There has been a continuing, albeit concealed alliance between international political capitalists, political capitalists and international revolutionary socialists to their mutual benefit. This alliance has gone unobserved, largely because history, historians, with a few noble exceptions, have an unconscious marxist Marxian bias and are thus locked into the impossibility of any such alliance existing. So there's this uh, you know this ideological uh, box that's been created that makes it impossible for people to see these kinds of things because they think in these terms that they've been dictated to by marx in effect you have capitalists and capitalist interests here and you have the proletarians over here they're 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 locked in this dialectical struggle and uh, there's nowhere that the two will ever meet in fact this is a a, a battle to the end in effect to the death in some cases, and it can't be overcome except by, you know, the overcoming of capitalism. So there's this total opposition. But this is not the, this is not true. And then uh, sub, a corollary to that is that, you know, um, only right wing ideology supports capitalism, that left wing ideology never supports capitalism. That's also not true. there's plenty of evidence to suggest that leftist ideology has done a great deal to support monopoly capitalism.
1: Well, oh, Elon mentioned uh, your great reset series. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I want to get to that. First, I want to talk about uh, some of your recent writings. Uh, You mentioned just in passing this book, I've got a proof for it. This is a, this is the new edition of political Ponderology. You see, right there on the bottom, forward by Michael Recknwald. So you've written the forward of this book. Um, I edited it. So a b- bit of a collaboration there. Um, is, it, is it any different than what I wrote?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: I'd like no, no, to see I know, what that no. says. No, 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 no. I, I, I misspoke. You edited or you're the just the making book, a joke. Yes, I edited the book. Yes.
0: Wonderful job you did, by the way. I didn't mention that in the uh, forward because it would be, a, because basically all I would, I mean, what I would say is with all the footnotes and the, the, uh, incredible scholarship that went into that, you've really, um, you know, updated that book and made it totally relevant. Great. So that's what I want to say now. Um, if I failed to say it in the forward, there's a great deal to be gained by getting this edition.
1: Great. And by, so you can see here, this says not for resale. This is just the proof, but by the time we put this up, it should be available. So, um, everyone should check it out. Michael wrote a great forward for it. Um, Makes me want to read it again. Uh, <laughs> and, it, well, so uh, well, we, can, we can talk about, the, maybe we can talk about a bit about the book later and why you, why you wrote the forward and why you thought it was <laughs> important enough to do so. But maybe briefly, maybe not, before that, I want to talk a little bit about The Great Reset. Uh, I noticed on Facebook that you've, that you've got uh, perhaps the final title uh, for your projected new book,
0: yeah. Do you want to do you want to? Yeah, can you talk I a think bit about that? It, it's going to be the Great Reset, how capitalists became Marxist. And I was thinking of adding how some Marxists have become capitalists, but I'm not sure about that yet. And I'm not sure about the title. What I want to do in that book is situate the Great Reset in a historical context, going all the way back to the early uh, communist millennialists in the 16th and 17th century centuries and move and connecting it all the way forward through uh Rousseauian uh socialists, uh through uh Saint Simonian socialism, uh into Marxism, and then you know through the Fabian socialists and all the way into the, the World Economic Forum and then see, letting people see the 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 historical similarities between what this group is up to and what's been uh, floated before, uh, and uh, there's some real serious connections, especially with uh, Saint Simon, uh, the, uh, the uh, Saint Simonian socialists basically came to the same exact uh, ruling class as the main. Uh, they came to to to. To posit the same kind of ruling class, if you will, that the uh, WEF has promoted—that is, a technocratic elite, uh, banked, uh, you know, basically supported by uh, big central bank, central banks, and um, and major corporate uh, technocratic uh, technological uh, corporations, which would allow for the technocracy element uh, of technocratic uh, control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, what I don't want to do in that book is just write like another book, like Glenn Beck's book called the great reset. Um, mm-hmm. And that is to say, um, uh, first of all, you know, the, the, very notion has, has still gotten this uh, over, it still has this kind of like resonance of conspiracy theory Even though I think now people realize that this is not uh, a theory, Um, this is probably an avowed open plan and it's being implemented in various ways through different programs and policies like the Build Back Better policies of the Biden administration and so on and so forth. And um, there's so many manifestations of it, it's almost impossible to get a handle on all of them Uh, But I wanna make it clear like this, what kind of a system this is that they have in mind. Um, And um, I wanna do that through some historical um, exegesis and positioning and situating. So um, that's why I'm gonna do this kind of historical excursus and uh, see how in fact, this thing lines up with um, other projects uh, of a similar nature. Why in fact they're socialists, I mean, why their socialism is compatible with this model. Uh, And I think we touched on that already with the the idea that socialism is nothing if not a monopoly, Um, but these corporate state partners, or as they call them, public-private partnerships, um see themselves these people that are instituting that um from schwab through all of his global leaders and uh and so on they see themselves as this kind of uh, you know administrator class that will oversee the institution of this on the ground socialism Mm -hmm. which to them is not incompatible with this oligarchy that they essentially support
1: Mhm. That relates uh I'll, I'll I'll get into a little bit of ponderology here um Elon's became... looking bored all of
0: a sudden. I don't
2: know. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, no. I, I was I was thinking of ponderology as well. Um no, go well, ahead with your question, yeah, Harrison, and okay. then I well, might follow up with something, but well, I know Adam has something too he wants to mention.
1: It'll it'll be a k- kind of just a, a comment slash uh, interpretation that maybe you you can give your thoughts on. So, it was just a few yeah. days ago that uh um, I, I came across some clips of what's the guy's name, uh, Harari. He's one mm-hmm. of the, yeah. you know, Schwab's Noah you've all Noah Harari, yeah, Noah Harari. Yeah. and yeah. It, it was the, the clip that's going around recent, uh, has been going around recently past week or so of him talking about how, you know, the, we we've now achieved through technology, like the mind is now a hackable thing. Humans are hackable. And we, we realize that, that we have no soul and, and no free will. So. Um, so basically we're going to be hacking people and, uh, and getting them now we can control people, you know, Uh, well, I'm paraphrasing now, this is essentially what he's saying. And, Mm -hmm. and so, so I saw that. And the first thing that came to mind is okay. Um, uh, typical schizoid now, Mm -hmm. now that, that word might be meaningless to a, to a lot of people or, you know, bring, bring up visions of 1970s King Crimson, but, um, the, one of the things Ponero- uh, that Lobachevsky talks about in ponderology is basically these different p- personality disorders and how they contribute to the origins of totalitarianism. And mm-hmm. the thing he says about ideologies, especially the types of ideologies that become the, the backbone of a totalitarian system like Marxism, is that they tend to be created by individuals either with schizoid personality disorder or who are, you know, pretty much like on that spectrum. And the the key feature of that, that relates to, relates to this, to this ideology is this, um, um, well, in, Ian Mag- in, in, in McGilchrist's terms, it's this, it's this left brain um, view of the world. That is hyper-rational, um, totally abstract, and at the same time, totally divorced from reality. So these ideological or, or these ideologues, these people that come up with these grand ideological visions of how, how the, how, how to fix the world the problems with the world and how to fix it oh well we just need to be rational we just need to to understand that humans are hackable creatures and that we uh that the human mind is essentially a, a phantom and that we can control people and the world will be a great place once we can once we do that and so i i really think that guys like harari um actually believe their own bullshit i don't think that um like a, well I don't know I don't know enough to say for sure but I don't think a lot of these people are like consciously evil villains like in the James Bond sense I think they really they really think that that they have the solution to fix the world it's just that they don't they can't see the context and they don't care about the fact that they could be wrong and they don't care about the fact that even if they're right they're going to destroy a whole bunch of uh well they're going to they're going to be the cause of a, of massive destruction in the process. And of course they're, they're wrong. So they don't actually realize that it's a, a pipe dream. So we've got guys like Harari who have this, this technocratic, um, like, uh, arrogant self-serving, um, vision of, of the world of other people and how, how, well, conveniently, they're the ones who are going to be in charge, right? Because they're the smart ones, they're the rational ones, they're the ones that know exactly how to fix everything. We'll just implement this great reset and then things things will be better. You know, The world will be better. It, we, we will build back better. But in the process, and this is one of the points that Ponera- that uh, Lobachevsky makes, is that even even if they have the greatest intentions, things don't actually go their way. They, they don't go the way that the that the vision implies that it should go or that it will go like if you if you look at the marxist vision um and if you look at marxists what they want and what they what they will say they want never actually takes place some of, well some of them will because some of them want you know some of them do want totalitarianism and uh, and total misery and disaster but a lot of the people are just well well-meaning and naive that they think oh here's the solution to the problems we'll implement it but it doesn't work because the theory was wrong in the first place and there were and it had several um, it had not only um, fatal weaknesses baked into the to the to the theory to the ideology but also um, but also openings to then be exploited by people who really don't care about the solution they just care about what they can get through the attempt to implement that solution um yeah i just wanted to throw out there and see what you thought well did adam have
0: something to add first because i was uh
3: well you can you can go ahead and give your comments on it because it actually relates to what i was thinking about which is uh kind of your your ability to uh pull all of these different threads together in terms of seeing the totalitarianism uh in all of its various manifestations and also uh, I think you clued into the fact that there was a personality aspect, uh, to Pathology some of this, aspect. a path, a, a, patho- a yeah. personality pathological aspect to, to the reason why, uh, it seems to be so widespread in so many various ways and aspects. And, um, I was personally curious about the, the development of your understanding, um, coming to this uh, or rather coming to this realization, um, and where ponderology fit into that kind of context for you. Um, yeah, so I guess you can,
0: okay. Yeah, that's good. But I'll try to field both of them. The, um, the, the thing that struck me about, uh, Ponerology in the book, uh, Lobachevsky's book is that, um, There, you know, there's uh, the schizoid that's basically the theorist, like Marx. Marx was a schizoid. um, And uh, and then that that theory uh, gets exploited by uh, psychopaths. And then they don't care. They're not actually when they use the terms that they do. They're actually thinking of something else and that the ideology is too two sided or it's doubled. There's the uh tacit meaning of the ideology, and then there's this hidden implicit meaning that these psychopaths give to it, which makes them completely uh basically inure to what the uh the the reading of this ideology is by the majority, uh the normal people, uh, Slobachevsky would put it. And uh that, 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 that double-sidedness is, is intriguing to me, and I've been thinking quite a bit about that. But, but back to the Harari guy, um, I thought that he's kind of like a controlled opposition within the WEF, that he is supposedly voicing kind of concerns that the WEF uh, is dangerous and that what they want to do is someone is dangerous is very dangerous. And um, I I took that video to be a kind of alarmism, but a kind of controlled opposition alarmism. Uh, But I may be wrong. I have to go back and look at it again. I I don't think he's lauding these developments. I think that he's kind of warning against them. I thought it was Hmm. largely an admonition. But if so, why is he so connected to the WEF? (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and why are they, on the one hand, touting all this, and then on the other hand, having this guy as a, sort of like a, I guess he's kind of like a fuse, a def, you know, a kind of, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, a, uh, uh a uh,
2: ignition, sort or- of. Yeah. Uh, the the valve list. for letting off the release pressure. Valve, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Release yeah. valve, yeah. Yes.
0: Uh why are they, you know, fla- why are they floating this guy out there? So I have to take a look at that video again. Um Yeah, well and I've got to admit, you know, it was a it was a
1: clip. I d- I didn't see the full context from the from the clip that I saw. <clears throat> it looked like he wasn't he wasn't really expressing uh in, in the clip that he wasn't really expressing either way whether it was a good thing or a bad thing just oh this is the way it is and it seemed like like it was almost like it seemed to me leaning in the positive direction like oh well this is just the way things are and
0: say it accompli yeah and uh therefore just accept it and go you know see what happens uh yeah that's that's kind of like schwab's attitude towards the fourth industrial revolution is uh it's a fait accompli. The only thing now, we need someone to manage it, you know. Um, or every I got to do this imitation. Every country from the United States to China must participate. And every industry from oil, gas and tech must be transformed. <laughs> you need to get your your Darth Sidious hood up as you yeah. as you do it. Oh. God, yes, he is a Bond villain. We can say <laughs> yeah. that for him. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm, I want to talk about that idea that I thought was most, that was kind of divergent uh, from anything I would read before, that you have these people that are basically flo- floating the original ideology, and then you have the psychopaths that when they say X, they mean something entirely different. And they, they know the insider knowledge. They have the, the knowledge of the insider as to what this actually signifies in, in reality. And they don't care. In fact, they know. And in fact, that's what they're trying to implement. And they use this other language to, to uh, facilitate it. So when they say the working class will be you know we'll have a society run and operated by the working class they mean a society run and operated by them as the party leaders and the state leaders and that they will institute a totalitarian regime where people thought was, which people thought was going to be a workers paradise um and uh that's just the way it is and that they 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 know better than what, you know, they know very much what they're doing. And I, I started to think that Schwab might be one of these people, that he's a psychopath and that he knows very well what what he's saying means. But he uses the code words that they have uh, sustainability, equity, sh- uh, sharing, you know, fairer, juster. Uh, what else does he say? You know, a shared We'll have shared goal, shared goals. Share goals, Uh, (laughs) but these will be their goals that you will share. I mean, and the recent book, which I haven't gotten too far into is the great narrative in which basically uh, there's a kind of tacit acknowledgement that this great reset discourse is not going over very well. And though they need to narrative it, narrativize it better. And, um, that is almost a sure sign of what Lo- Lobachevsky was talking about where you know we're, what we're saying has been decoded so we got to re-encode it to make sure it's it's uh, oblique to the uh to the non insider
3: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. how many times have they done various different uh, like campaigns and uh like pictures and 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 things where they've they've put out uh, what is explicitly their agenda, only for it to get trolled on Twitter and yeah. for people to be like, what is this? And this is you'll own nothing. The and most be happy. Of, yeah, you'll and, owe nothing and be happy. And, and, then, and then they deny it. And, and say, then they oh, deny we didn't it. actually yeah, say yeah, that. Yeah, and that's <laughs> the
0: other thing. They gaslight us to death. Right. Mm-hmm. So they put off this thing, this great reset all over their website in several books. COVID-19, the great reset. And then they sort of somehow get it across to the press that they're to, to dismiss it as a conspiracy theory. And it's still being dismissed that way by the mainstream media. It's uh, crazy. Like the New York times and uh, the uh, anti-defamation league, who's trying to impute that any kind of thinking with reference to this is grand, you know, Jewish, consp- you know, anti-Jewish conspiracy theory. Um, you know, I, I don't see, you know, Schwab, <laughs> If anything, I would more liken him to a Nazi, frankly, mm-hmm. uh, to be honest. I mean, his parents, his parents were involved. I mean, his father was involved with the Nazi party. I don't think that's I don't want to g- give a genetic fallacy here, but th- there is some connection to that. And. There's a there's a bizarre there's so many bizarre elements to this that I have to unravel. Still, there's I think I've unravelled some of them, but there's still more to do. There's plenty more to do. Mm-hmm.
3: So yeah, as you were saying with uh, uh, and and bringing up you know what you were talking about, Harrison with uh, the way in which there's the, the schizoid uh, personality types who are the, the theoreticians, the people who come up with the narratives who, um, who basically aren't total psychopaths. They have to have some ability to interact with the real world in order to get, uh, to, to use the emotional hooks, uh, Mm -hmm. in the same way that, uh, uh, you know, a con man would do for, for stealing, you know, or from, uh, well, yeah, from stealing from somebody. In order to con them, you have to hoodwink them. Um, and they're able to come up with this, this grand and, and very simple, uh, very simplified solution mm-hmm. to things, which uh, for anybody who's able to think at all to any great depth should come to realize that any, well, it's like, yeah. a, it's a postmodernist uh, critique, you, you, a rejection of meta narratives i mean that in its essence is yeah. kind of like what you should do to any kind of meta narrative because meta narratives in that kind of simple context are unusable and unworkable because they're not real understandings or uh real concepts based in the real world
0: it's uh, yeah it's a i caricature. like that about uh about Ponerology too where Lobachevsky says these people have impoverished views of the social order uh, Marx had an impoverished view of human beings. He basically was a ter- ter- terrible uh, uh, cynic where human nature is concerned. And uh, this is what enabled him to pit these wicked, evil capitalists who. Who who when they hire people for a job, they're actually thinking: How can I keep from giving him X amount of, of the surplus value? How can I extract the surplus value from the point of production? And uh, <laughs> I I and and uh, you know this that, that there's this he even says this in Capital. You know, there's this nefarious. Uh, uh, first of all, it's an agreement across all these people within the capitalist class they're all thinking like this cuz they have class this particular class consciousness you know so there's this reductionism of everybody into this very sinister mode of thinking as if they all secretly call, like think this way and they you know and, and 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 uh coincidentally every one of them thinks the same way uh and uh, that they all have this class interest uh in doing this to people <clears throat> It's it's a very I think that Lobachevsky puts it great. It's such an impoverished worldview. And that's really what precipitates their theory. You know, before I uh, read Ponerology, I thought that basically everything could be accounted for in terms of systemic critique, which is a very leftist way of thinking, frankly. And that, you know, all you have to do is understand the system that they're putting in place, and then you can figure out how to demolish it, Uh, you can criticize it, and you can show where it's wrong. But it opened my eyes to the idea that um, there's this possibility that you have pathological worldviews being perpetrated by particular, by individuals, and then there's Absorbed by the populace, and they are not strictly—they're uh, not strictly like systemic in that sense. That they're just um, uh, about the, you know, like the world—the world the, the view that they have really does derive uh, from other individuals, and then it metastasizes out to the social body. And you don't—it's not enough to grasp what's wrong with it economically. What's wrong with it ideologically? What's wrong with it uh, in all those other ways? Uh, Politically, uh, in terms of liberty and all that, in order to stop it, you have to realize what you're dealing with is very sick people.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: And that was totally new to me. I mean, yeah.
3: The the way that... You have the oh gosh, what was it? The um, I think it was in your your introduction to to Ponerology where it's um, you have yeah. So like you were describing with uh, different people, that's that's kind of where the crux of the matter comes down to. Like you're saying, you you thought you could critique the system. You thought you could look at the yeah. rules, look at the the way that they laid things out. Uh, we're all rational human beings here. We can, you know, come to a, an mm-hmm. understanding of the critique, and then we can work forward from that. And and therein lies the issue: is the the assumption, the underlying assumption, that everyone that you're dealing with yep. is the same, is a normal person, yeah, is is essentially the same,
0: a normal rational human being with goodwill towards others, yes, uh, mm-hmm. with you know, with perfectly you know benign intent and all that when this is, you, you know, like, I think he, he really convinced me that it's not the case. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to comment a bit on that, um, in that direction. So one of the things I, I mentioned in the, in the introduction, well, before that, I want to, to give you an image. Um, it's like the, the predator, like in, in the movie, the the Schwarzenegger movie, the predator, like with the camouflage, this, like the, you can just kind of see that he's there, or it might be something that's like, uh, that's kind of in your peripheral vision that you, that, that just, it, that when you try to look at it, it still moves to your peripheral vision. It's always on the outer edge and you never quite, um, you never, it never quite comes into focus. And that's the way I've, I see, the understanding of individual psychology in the relation to to understanding all of these topics it's the it's the essential issue that is camouflaged and that and that it's it's almost like there's a gravity well or like a um, like light kind of curving around a planet um, that it, it when you try to look at it you just can't get it it, it just escapes your notice and in the introduction uh, as an example of this I wrote about. Uh, uh, with reference to Milgram and Zimbardo, and um, well, Milgram and Zimbardo were the two main ones. And so, Milgram's experiment, the the the, the famous um, shocking experiment, where you you the the the, the experimenter sets up this fake. Um, interaction where the where one participant is giving a like a, a memory test or you know a spelling test or something to another participant, and when they get the answer wrong, you're supposed to shock them, and they turn up the dial, turn up the dial until it's a until it is a a deadly um, level of electricity and presumably you hear the person it's like screaming um then they then eventually they stop screaming and they're just like lying on the floor if you can see them and presumably you've now killed a person and all because the 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 tester the experimenter says no you have to keep going no you have to keep going no you have to be, keep going and so um similar in the in the zimbardo prison experiment you have these kids that uh or not or not not, not necessarily not necessarily kids but young men who basically turn into um like you know, sadistic uh, prison guards, <clears throat> and you you look at these experiments and the way they, they're presented, the way I learned about them in in you know psychology class, and the way they're presented in just general culture, um, it's all about how how normal people can do bad things, and so mm. uh, so well yeah. Okay, because a lot of these guys, these experimenters, were trying to understand real evils like, uh, like in World War II, like the Holocaust. How could how could ordinary people do evil things? And but staring them right in the face is the fact that it's the experimenter telling them to do that. What role is the experimenter playing in that situation? That it's the thing that n- that no one focuses on. Well, mm. so in real life, in these real situations that they're, that they're trying to um, experimentalize there's a real person giving the orders right now in real life it's not a a a professor a psychology professor pretending to be an asshole telling people to kill other people with electric shocks because if they were it would be an experiment and they say oh no no it wasn't real that's the very reason the experiment was fake in the first place is because they're not going to get these people to actually kill other people in the experiment the fact is like in nazi germany it was real people killing other people in experiments partly you know in addition to many other things so who is the person giving the orders who what is the type of person that actually does that and mm. that's the thing that's been almost completely ignored of course you know there have been a couple people here and there who have made the connection who have said it like Gustav Gilbert who was one of the prison psychologists at Nuremberg who said Goering was a psychopath you know we have to we have to acknowledge this that there was a there was the nazis had a psychopathy problem we we should take that into account but but it it not it doesn't get any traction and no one really no one really looks at it no one says well what role was zimbardo playing what role was uh was milgram playing well he was playing the role of well what was it it was it turns out so lobachevsky who's lived through it says well these people were the psychopaths there was something yeah. uh, I, I saw a
0: really a really interesting clip. Um, but- But these psychopaths, uh, let okay. me say this, these psychopaths yeah. will tell you that doing this evil to these people is actually good for them. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, that's and, and one a, of a the lot of people will believe it. Yeah. That, yeah,
1: that, that's another great point that he makes is in the, the section on uh, reverse, what he calls reversive blockades, which is essentially a big lie. Right. He points out just right. the basic psychology of it. When you tell a person a whopper of a lie, it actually there's a psychological process where it makes it harder for them to actually see the truth
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you can you can see this all the time in the media that's why that's why fake news is a meme well and a lot of people can see it but i think a lot of that is probably just a just a result of what side of the political spectrum they happen to be on at the moment but mm-hmm. but when you tell person a when you tell people a huge lie just the fact of saying it cuz i think there's this inherent trust within humanity as a social species where Mm-hmm. You know, for thousands of years we've gotten by on believing what people tell us in just everyday conversation. It's like, oh yeah, yeah I, I'm making dinner over there. We're gonna eat in a few hours. Okay, and then a few hours later you eat because that person was telling the truth. There's a there's like there there are limits to to the amount of deception and lies that people generally um, engage in in ordinary interactions. So when a person tells you something, when a figure of authority tells you something with absolute certitude, this is true, or even just yeah. in a in, in an authoritative state of vo- uh, um, um, tone of voice that oh well we believe this to be true to to a high degree of of certainty or probability, and people believe that, oh well they they must have good reason for believing that, and without knowing that. Th- there, there is probably absolutely no evidence for what they're saying. They're, they're just saying that in yeah. order to get you to believe it. Um, right. one of what I was going to say, this, this clip that I watched was from, um, retri- retired, retired, l- retired Lieutenant Colonel David Redman, um, who was the emergency management head of emergency management in Alberta for a while. And, um, he, he's been like for a year and a half over the last year, or a couple of years, he was, um, really criticizing like lockdown policies and presenting alternatives, but kind of getting nowhere in Canada. And in this clip, he says that in his 27 years of military experience, there's one thing that he learned, is that no matter what, um, the, the, what number of like recruits or just troops you're dealing with, whether it's 50, whether it's hundred, whether it's a thousand, because he, he's dealt with like um, you know battalions, however big battalions are, I'm not a big military guy, like, and groups from like 50 to like a thousand people, or 800, he says in every group, he said, "There's five percent of them are evil." He said in in his in his military wow. experience, there would he said in a group of fifty, there would always be two or three people who were pure evil, and he said if those people weren't removed, if they weren't identified and taken out, they would then um, they would then influence the the suggestible fifteen mm-hmm. percent, and the and the battalion or whatever grouping would be. Um, totally demoralized. Everyone else, the normal 80 percent, would kind of g- would do their jobs, but with their heads down. They would not be enjoying themselves. They would not be feel like they're in a uh, a workable or just a working functional social unit. And but but that as soon as those five percent, whether it's two or three or more, were removed, that 15 percent would instantly switch to the 80 percent, and everything would go fine. And he says that that's. So that was the, like one thing that he learned in 27 years of military um, experience, and then he made the connection, the leap. He says, and I think that we have to keep that in mind for every other level of of society, of our of, of government, of you know, and any grouping of people, yeah. no matter where it is. It's not just the criminal class, um, you know, the the underclass. That anywhere you look, you're going to get well, more or less, because no. there's going to be variations, but more or less, you're going to get five percent of people who are pure evil. And if they get into power, this is what Lobachevsky says, if they're the ones that get into power, then that 5% everywhere are th- the new ruling class. And then you've got yeah. that 15% of supporters and everyone nice. else is just putting their heads down, getting by. And that's the that's the history of totalitarianism in the 20th
0: century. Uh, absolutely. And it makes me think of like uh, what's going on today where you have people like Jen Psaki, the uh, mm-hmm. press secretary for for Biden is able to say, you know, going back to reverse of blockades, is able to I- iterate these most outrageous claims, like inflation is not happening, or if it is, it's actually good for us, or it's a it's a luxury problem, or anything. But these are so far removed from the truth, and yet, how does she get? A, how does she get away with it with herself? You know, that, that's the question that I really have. It's not not all she's able to fool anybody, but how does she fool herself to this extent? Mm-hmm. And uh, she's either one of these suggestible 15% or else she's a psychopath. Um, one of the two, she, you know, this is a big question. How do these people do this? Uh, and I think one of the ways to understand it is through uh, Ponerology. Uh, it makes perfect sense that way. Mm-hmm. There's,
1: there's a there's an, a, another aspect there, and that is the just the the mentality that has been around. I don't know how many years because I'm I'm fairly young, but I don't know when I first noticed it. But this whole PR um, PR mentality, the the idea in corporations in 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 politics where you're pre, you're presented with a um, a PR disaster or something, and so you have to yeah. get in front of that. You have to put forward your narrative in order to protect your ass, essentially, and and the asses yeah. of the people around you. So there's been just just that culture. There's an incentive to to lie, essentially, just mm-hmm. to oh yeah, to, and and so I think I think a lot of it. Um, you know, I, I I might be too generous a lot of the time, but I think um, a lot of the times it is that kind of fifteen percent phenomenon of people just going along with it. Um, and it could even be for, in their mind, they might have good, good motive. Well, not necessarily good motives, but ordinary selfish motives, because
0: I, I think, think, the, a lot of, I think yeah. there's a good percentage of people that actually, like 15%, I think there's a percentage of people that aren't psychopaths, but when they get in, when they get directed by, or in contact with, and uh, effectively infected by these people, mm-hmm. they begin to enjoy the same pleasures of psychopathy, hmm. you know, and Some it gets delicacy. to be fun for them. They're yeah. like, "Yeah, well, well, fuck those people," you know. I mean, they, they yeah. sort of just go on with it, and uh, and they enjoy it. I think. I, I think they enjoy the infliction of pain. Hmm.
1: Yeah that that's one of the important points that Lobachevsky raises. He calls it psychological induction. That yeah induction. You know yeah. when you when you when you're in the sphere of influence of a person with a like genuine psychopathology, that there's almost this resonance, and you can see this. It's 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 probably probably most prominent in um, close relationships, like the child-parent relationship. When yeah. if if you're raised in this environment um, with this um, distorted, you know, altered, impoverished worldview and and way just way of being, then it forms your mind in that way. And you, you, mm-hmm. you grow up, you grow up, um, not knowing what the outside world is like, not knowing that there's an alternative. And, and so right. there, it's almost like this hypnotic effect. So I think that, yeah, when you, when you're, a potentially a wide-eyed, you know, idealistic, um, young person that wants to get an, a white house internship, and then you finally get in there and you see what the culture is. Then there are so many incentives to just go along with the program and to, 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 to have your mind shaped and to shape your own mind, to actually be partly involved in the process in order to keep being part of the team. And unfortunately, what that means is Mm -hmm. that even if, even if you were an idealistic, you know, person who wouldn't ordinarily become a monster like that, Mm -hmm. that the fact that there are so many people doing it makes it a lot easier for a real wolf to be wearing that, you know, so-called sheep's clothing
0: because they're
1: all doing the same thing.
0: Yeah. And like you said, there's incentives. And one of those incentives I think is just pure pleasure. Um, When they get into the act of lying, for example, you know, it becomes a challenge to see just how much you can pull over and what kind of narratives you can make up um, to construct these reverse of blockades. I think Mm -hmm. uh, that's what the PR guy does. I, I, I faced that at NYU with the public relations guy Every time something would happen with me, he would completely refabricate it, and um, he would just, you know, he would uh, take, you know, very damning facts about NYU and flip them into this whole other register, so that they were made to appear very acceptable and actually, you know, actually beneficial. Um, And uh, I noticed that the whole left went along. That was the other thing that I noticed. Is like. These people that are supposedly, you know, against power and, you know, Foucauldian terms, or against the ruling class and Marxist terms, really, when it came down to it, they sided with the behemoth over me, um, mm-hmm. and that I found to be very curious. There's almost a
1: a need or a desire to to accept the lie. It's I don't know how to fr- how to frame it, but. Um... It's almost a relief to have the the lie presented as a yeah as a life jacket you know as a support Um, and again in Ponderology, he calls this um, uh, like conversive thought processes or substitution and selection of data is that when there's an uncomfortable truth people are 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 motivated to uh, this is like motivated reasoning uh, cognitive biases um, cognitive errors people are motivated to accept a. A rose-tinted view of of the facts, so that they don't have to accept the the uncomfortable truth of what's going on. Because for all of the for all of your you know colleagues, it's like, well, what what is what costs more emotionally for for me to you know step out of the out of the herd and side with one guy who's getting piled on, yeah. you know, or to or to accept this this. Um, this pr you know photoshopped version of reality and i can be part of the 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 majority i can be comfortable and if yeah i know it's just one guy you know yeah you know so, so yeah, sorry, and buddy. i think
0: also that the, that what i was pointing out was really in vain against their ideological predispositions and if i could show that their ideological predispositions manifested in this way as evil then in fact they would be very uncomfortable if they accepted my view so they would yeah. you know it made induce them to accept the administrative view yeah
2: yeah the the thing about it is that um you have to be incredibly motivated to uh, to see through the lies and and want to get at the bottom of the truth it's so much easier to accept what you're being spoon-fed uh, in, in the news, in the media, uh, what people, you know, who have a position of power over you perhaps, or family members, uh, there is, there is pressure that's overt, it's covert. And, you know, why make my life miserable? Uh, even if there are some people saying that there's something very wrong with the situation. So there's, um, I think a level of commitment an individual has, or an innate desire, real desire, to want to get to the bottom of things for themselves uh, with truth as the highest value. Um,
1: or they just have to be like smacked over the head with a,
2: a catastrophe that, you know,
1: makes it, makes it impossible not to see it, right? Where, it bec- where the, st- the stakes become personal.
2: <clears throat> and they, they yeah. need to be willing to engage in a, a crisis, a kind of crisis of conscience, if, if such a thing is possible uh, for them.
0: I wrote about this in Beyond Woke. If you don't mind, I read a little passage. Yeah, go ahead. Please. Uh, I've learned a a lot about shunning over the past two years, but I won't say how because I was in the middle of the suit. I couldn't say how. I've learned that shunning is an ancestral behavioral pattern directed at the deviant individual. Shunning is the means by which the herd ejects the stray and reinforces herd coalescence and mutual self-protection the herd is the leviathan and the demos of the decentered cathedral the papacy with a million popes as i'll discuss later for individual herd members herd compulsion is experienced as a yearning for collective protection and fear of the herd itself this double compulsion ensures that the, the compliance is the rule rather than the exception and it is almost all, it almost all but guarantees that only deviants can see the herd's methods of superintendence which are therefore incommunicable to herd members. Further, fear of the herd is based on the herd's history of terror, which all cognizant members have witnessed being applied to others. The deviance that everyone must avoid and avoid becoming. <laughs> yep. So, um, just getting at the um, this double compulsion of of the herd mentality. It's both you get protection of for being in the herd and you get and for you and then and then there's the compulsion of fear of the herd itself and as a member of of the herd you know what the herd can do mm-hmm. and uh, that it has this uh that it engages in terror and that it destroys people if you don't so this is all the more incentive not to, to not to side with the deviant not to side With the deviationist, I should put it more likely, um, deviance implies some sort of pathology, whereas deviationism is just deviation from the herd mentality or the herd ideology. Mm
2: -hmm. I I did have a a little bit of a digression of a question for you, Michael, because um, some months back we had Rod Dreher on the show. Uh, he wrote like almost
1: a year, a year ago, maybe.
2: Yeah, it was, it was a while, not too long ago. More than. Was it? In I, I, face, it, all, it
1: all blurs together these past couple of years.
2: <laughs> he wrote, uh, live not by lies, a manual for Christian Dissidents," And he, um, he had interviewed individuals who lived in, uh, the Eastern European Soviet satellite countries, uh, in the fifties and sixties and discussed the types of things that they, um, they needed to do for themselves to, uh, to fortify themselves against, um, tyranny, uh, the networks they created and the, <clears throat> excuse me, the kind of, um, the kind of, uh, spiritual, uh, religious, um, organizations and, and networking that were, um, part of the, the very substance of their faith in the future and their, and their strength. Yeah. And so, um, I would, you know, I was wondering uh, because to do what you're doing re- requires a great deal of strength. I think uh, personal strength, and um, so I-, I guess how do I frame this question? Is there? You a- just
0: want to spit it right out. I'm fine. I know what you're yeah. doing. Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Trying to ease into it a little bit. No, don't worry about <laughs> it. Just go for it. Okay. What if anything uh, do you feel is the religious or or spiritual dimension to to being a a kind of a truth warrior um in 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 this sphere that you're working how does that figure in if at all uh to who you are and Uh, and
0: uh, this work well you can see that i'm welling up somewhat i'm a christian and uh that's how it works for me in other words um I have a conviction to the truth and I have a feel, I have also, I have a faith in, in, uh, in my protection. Uh, and it also gives me sustenance to continue. Um, if it weren't for that, I wouldn't be able to do it. I I don't know if that's too straightforward for what you were getting at, but that's the truth. And, uh, now when I say this, I'm not talking like I'm not, uh, i don't I shouldn't have to qualify this, but what I mean is that um to me the cross sort of symbolizes everything that is difficult in life and um and that the cross to me is the way through and uh that redemption comes through that that there is this on earth, there is this, there is this cross. And um, this cross though is not the end, you know, it leads to another world. And if it weren't for that faith, I don't think I could be able to do this. And, I, and I, I, you know, I'm not uh, slightly different than Peterson who sees in Christianity a kind of uh, uh, symbolic uh, archetypes and so forth. You know, I actually believe it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's um, so like you're saying, Peterson has recently uh, expressed his own uh, renewal or deeper faith in in uh, in Christianity or Christ or Jesus, or, and was also quite emotional. It's a very real thing for him. And it was only through, I think, mm-hmm. his trials and challenges that struck to the very core of him that he, um, he was able to come to it. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, it's sometimes that's what it takes in the life of an individual to, to know it on some visceral level that isn't, uh, necessarily so easy to explain, um, or account for um so i I appreciate that that's that's something that i i wanted to know about you having you know read about your years of of research and writing about secular you know (laughs) organizations the thing is
0: interestingly enough i i was attracted even when i was writing about secularism to a particular thread of secularism the way it was founded which was that kind of ecumenicism. Uh, ecumenical movement that also included believers as well as non believers, mm-hmm. and that wasn't, uh, like a negation, it wasn't about the negation of super of belief or anything like that. So, I trumpeted that sort of as an as seemingly now, as I see it, an anticipation of where I was headed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to say this and connect it back to the book as I found this to be an important element of the book as well. Um, political phenomenology and that is he lobachevsky says that this is an empirical fact of human life that there is a spiritual dimension and to dismiss it is unscientific mm-hmm. and i found that to be very convincing i've actually very um i, I shouldn't say convincing what it did is is it was very uh I thought it was, first of all, it's true, I think. Um, And also, secondly, I found it to be a really bold admission on his part to say this, because, you know, it is when you make when you make confessions like the one I just made, it's an easy way for certain people to dismiss you. Mm -hmm. And generally, everyone, you know, those who are operating from a materialist epistemology and ontology will dismiss you because they don't. You know, it's much more sophisticated, they think, to to have a materialist worldview and that anything that deviates from that must be some kind of a crank. Uh, the person who deviates must be some sort of a crank where they're looking for a crutch or or something like that. I, I just find it to be an ontological reality. And <clears throat> so I found that very heartening. Let's put it that way to read that in yeah. uh, Lobrachewski's. Uh, discourse, that he he said, you know, uh, even to be scientific, we must acknowledge this dimension mm-hmm. of human life toward, uh, towards transcendence, and um, that without the transcendent, nothing really makes sense in terms of human society. You can't even make sense of human society without it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this relates, th- this is put beautifully, I think, in Dreyer's book, in some of the interviews, where it was it was the the believers' faith that allowed them to survive and to to survi- to, to live with purpose in such bleak times um it, and not and I think it's because the the reason for that is not just that it, they found some self-deception that let them get through through something it's that it worked because it was true yeah you know yeah. and there is a power there. And that's something that, that Lobachevsky acknowledges. He's got a chapter on, on religion and its relation to pathocracy. And one of the interesting things that he said that st- that stood out to me the first time I read it years ago was that whenever pathocracy develops in a, in a society <clears throat> or in a civilization, it means the religion of that society has failed mm. and to, to do its job that, um, that, well, and there's a, the the kind of implication of that is that there is an essential place for religion. Um, it, it fulfills an essential role in in human groupings and in in societies. And not I I don't even like the way I phrase that because it kind of just uh, you know sound like a sociologist or something. It's a function. Yeah, you
0: gave us sort yeah. of a functionalist. Uh, yeah. Tilt, but that's okay. Yeah
1: but uh yeah, but it it is essential it's because it's an essential part of not only human life but of reality that and I guess if I could put it in a if I could try to take the biggest like broadest view of what loboshevsky is saying like throughout this whole book is that in order for things to work well it it uh in, in order for a thing to work well, it needs to be consistent and co and coherent and resonant with all all of reality, with like every facet of reality. As soon as yeah. you deviate, as soon as you deviate right. from reality in one of its aspects, it, could, it then then it's uh, it's like you you go off and there's there's a cliff waiting for every every deviation from reality, whether it's something simple like you know Mao's yeah. great leap forward, and well it just that's not going to work, and a lot of people are going to die, or or it, it could just be something minor like oh well we'll look at. Will will just ignore or n- uh, not acknowledge or um, not see this certain aspect of human nature, and every every error that we make um, snowballs, and totalitarianism mm-hmm. is the, the totalitarianism that we saw in its multiple forms in the twentieth century was one of those giant snowballs that turned into a uh, like a massive avalanche that took you know tens of millions of people with it.
0: Yeah. And, and, and we saw in the Soviet Union where, we, you know, atheism became the state official state stance, uh, the official state policy and uh, creed uh, that it didn't destroy religiosity. It it, it, uh, it only in fact, it, it kind of hardened it into place and such that when when the Soviet Union fell, this it just it was a record uh, record reemergence of it, a recrudescence of it, you know, and that uh, it, it couldn't be squelched because it's necessary, as you put it, because it's necessary, not just functionally, because society can't function when it doesn't accord with reality, with the truth. Mm-hmm. And if you get rid of an element like that, that makes people's lives work, then they won't work when, when, it, when, it, when it's gone. And uh it's distorted. You'll have a distorted worldview that it won't allow you to see things as they are. Um And I think that's, 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 that came home to me very clearly in that book.
1: Well, well or just, I, w- I was going to say, we might wrap it up in a, in a few minutes. Um Did you have one, one last question? I have one more thing to say, but
2: just a quick comment. And that is that I don't think it's any coincidence that, um, uh, the, the, um, the ease with which people have been allowed to go back to, to churches, particularly in the U S, uh, during the past two years, um, the, the, the atomization of people, uh, being kept apart from the place where they where they would worship and be with each other in this sharing of worship. I, and, you know, couple that with the incredible numbers of, um, uh, churches and religious institutions in Europe getting burned down and vandalized in the past few years, it, it doesn't seem like very much of a, you know, uh, an arbitrary thing. It seems in, on, on some level, part and parcel of uh, the, this movement towards, you know, materialist, uh, ideological possession, um, just, you know, just kind of extracting any of the, um, any of what's uh, socially helpful and constructive about religious institutions. Um yeah. So, just wanted to mention that. Well, yeah, because yeah, a, I it's think a that's direct- true
0: because they need to institute another faith, and they have to get rid of this dominant creed or any creeds that stand in the way.
3: Yes, that you took the words right out of my mouth because that was exactly what I was going to say. If you're looking to create a monopoly the only way you can do that is destroying your competition. And yeah, if that's right. Uh, and if that works churches, in the
0: ideological sphere as well as the economic. Yeah. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the church and faith is a direct competitor to, uh, or, or people's conscience, their, their direct line to God mm-hmm. is a direct competitor with, uh, the the propaganda line or the propaganda hotline uh such as it is like cnn and and other you know outlets so that the media uh it's a direct competitor for their ability to control your mind and your thoughts and your emotions and where you put your energy so it's it's absolutely no wonder it's no surprise at all that that these kind of these kinds of attacks have been happening on these kinds of institutions and 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 believers uh, for that very reason. Yeah, So
0: absolutely, I agree. Well, I just
1: wanted to um, reference back a couple of shows we did um, probably in 2020 on a book. I think you, I think you might appreciate this book, Michael. Um, well, I'll give a little, just a tiny little backstory. At this time I was reading, um, I think I was reading some of Conceived in Liberty um, by by Murray Rothbard. Mm-hmm. And in that, you know, it's a kind of pre-revolutionary history of uh, America, the United States. And he talks about the Quakers. So there's some mm-hmm. really cool stuff about the Quakers in there and um, uh, worthy of a show. But uh, at the same time, at around that time, I read a book by a modern Quaker, a guy named Timothy Ashworth that a bunch of us read. And it's called Paul's Necessary Sin. And it's probably my favorite book on, um, I, I, it's up there in among my favorite books on Christianity. Um, and I think his, his description and his understanding of what the cross means, I think, I think you'll appreciate. And I just wanted to, I can't yeah. remember if, I, if I'm curbing this from, from Ashworth, if it's something I thought of myself or if I got it somewhere else, but it's almost like the, the suffering of the cross um and the, mm-hmm. the suffering in you know in our own lives, it's like that suffering um opens up the heart. Um, it opens us to to something that that mm-hmm. maybe maybe before we didn't have access to. It uh it kind of solidifies the connection. And so that's um hearing your story, I, I hear I hear an echo of that that uh, because you've suffered a lot over the last uh, you know, o- over the years, over these last, especially these last um Um, what, how many years is it now? Six years. Um, since the the whole NYU thing. And, um, I think it's, it's, uh, that, that,
0: Oh, I forgot to mention that while I was being, I was being assaulted by the social justice warriors, my son was diagnosed with stage four cancer at the same time. So, and then my girlfriend at the time became woke and sided with NYU and, um, so I had, yeah, it yeah. was a pretty rough time, Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, together they, they constituted my trials and tribulations for sure. Yeah. Jeez.
1: Well, uh, well, I think, uh, it's, it's a book worth checking out. I think, I, I, I think you'll, I think yes. I'll appreciate
0: it. Paul's Paul, Paul's necessary, necessary,
1: necessary sin. sin. Yeah. It's a, uh, uh, you know, on it first gla- right away. On first glance, it might appear to be a book on like uh, philology or like you know the, what 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 do these words mean, but it all comes together in this like beautiful picture of what he is what he is essentially doing is looking at Paul's letters and try, and trying to find the coherent the coherent message within that letters the coherent well message um, like view or worldview or yeah just. The, the coherence of the ideas and the and the images that are that are in Paul's letters, and it's just I mm-hmm. found it to uh, just beautiful and uh, um, really well I'll stated. I'll check it out. Okay. Well. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Michael. Thank you. Um, again, uh, this pleasure. is the the latest of of Michael's writings available. In political ponderology. all his books are available on his website, uh, michaelrechtenwald.com. We'll have a link in the show description. Right. Um, if you if you're if you're an evil person, you can buy them on Amazon. But uh, <laughs> but, uh, no, but if, if you, <laughs> you can, can buy them the... directly from me, yeah. Yes, exactly. If you buy them, you buy them directly from them... me, I sign them. Yeah. Great. So uh, michaelrechtenwald.com, leave a link. Um, oh, you've also got uh, a news site that you established way back, like 2003, was it? Uh, CLG? One. Maybe 2001. CLG nine right? okay, eleven. Yeah.
0: LegitGov.org.
1: Okay. Yeah. LegitGov.org. So check that legit out
0: too. LegitGov.org. That's the news site that I sponsor. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, we didn't get a, a chance to talk about it, but we'll have you on again, um, Like, especially, well, for sure when your new book comes out, um, we'll all read it and we'll have you, you on to talk about it. And maybe we'll have uh, more discussions of this sort in the, in the intervening months. So thank you again, Hopefully. Michael. We had a, a, a great time talking to you and uh, we're so glad that you're healthy and that you're writing and um,
0: happy to have you with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Take care. care.